morning. John chapter 4, verse 6 through 26. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank it from himself, as did also his sons in his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet the hour is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he, the word of the Lord. We are finishing a series today in which we've been discussing some of the most controversial questions in our culture, things like gender and sexuality. Uh, these conversations are what are often called crucial conversations. A crucial conversation is three things, wide, high, and deep. First, a crucial conversation has wide variety of viewpoints. People believe radically different things about something. Secondly, a crucial conversation is high stakes. 
Um, it's not just about which ice cream flavor is best. These are things that really matter. And third, crucial conversations have deep emotions. People feel passionately about something. You put all three of these things together, wide views, high stakes, and deep emotions, and that's a crucial conversation. Um, in our culture, many of these conversations are especially fraught, uh, like things like abortion or transgender identities, and so much so that wa uh, having these conversations feels like walking through a minefield, like one wrong step and you could get blown up. As a result, many of us are reluctant to have crucial conversations about difficult topics, which is tragic because many of these topics uh, touch the deepest parts of our lives. In other words, the most important conversations are the ones we're least likely to have because they're most likely to go wrong. And that is exactly the situation with the conversation in this passage we just read. It has all the potential to go really wrong. For example, there are gender tensions here. Jewish men are not supposed to talk to women they're not married to. There are ethnic tensions. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There are also religious tensions. Jews thought Samaritans were basically heretics. On top of all that, Jesus wants to talk to this woman about some of the most deeply painful and broken parts of her life. It's almost like an intervention. This conversation has all the potential to go really, really wrong. But it doesn't. Why? At the beginning of this series, I mentioned four goals or principles to help us walk through these conversations that we've been having. Now, I didn't make them up. I actually got them from Jesus, and we see them here. There are four things Jesus does here that help us have healthy conversations. Jesus allows complexity. He shows respect. He extends compassion, and he embodies love. Let's Look at each four of those things in order, okay? First, let's notice that Jesus allows complexity. Um, Jesus wants to reveal to this woman the depths of her spiritual thirst and how she can only find fulfillment for that thirst in Jesus, but he doesn't begin there. Before they can even have that conversation, Jesus has to deal with her objections. For instance, she says... You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus is breaking several social taboos here, and so she challenges him on that. When Jesus says, well, I want to give you living water, she says, well, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She thinks Jesus is talking about water from this well, but he appears powerless to get it. And so she challenges him on that. Jesus is dealing with her objections and her challenges that she's offering him. Uh, and friends, we need to do the same thing because Jesus is not just, you know, looking at this woman and saying, you foolish person, how could you be so ignorant and, um, and obstinate? No. D listen, here's, here's the point. Jesus is God, which means that Jesus has answers to all of her questions. And yet Jesus um, doesn't begin by saying, you foolish woman, how could you be so ignorant? No, he begins by taking her objections and her questions seriously and by taking the time to work through those objections with her. Here's the takeaway for us. Um, I've got a newsflash for you. 
you and I are not God. That means that all of the things that are clear and obvious to Jesus are mysterious and complex for us. We all have a tendency to think, my way of seeing things is clear and obvious, and anyone who disagrees with me is an ignorant fool who obstinately refuses to see the truth. That's especially true in our modern scientific culture. We're conditioned to think that real knowledge is stuff that can be proven through science and reason. You see this with religious skeptics like Richard Dawkins or Ricky Gervais, but you also see it with a lot of Christians. Here are five arguments to prove that God exists. Gotcha. We all have a tendency to think my view, my way of seeing things is clear and obvious and everybody else has to get on board. But the biggest questions of life are rarely clear and obvious. They're mysterious and complex. Listen, if Jesus, who really does know everything, if he allows for complexity and takes objections seriously enough to listen to them, how much more should we? Because every worldview comes with its own problem set. We all have a view of reality. Some people believe in a loving personal God. Other people believe this world is all there is. There are different worldviews out there, but every worldview comes with its own problem set. In other words, every worldview faces objections and challenges and problems. Are, are we honest enough to acknowledge the problems in our own worldview? Um, if you think that your worldview has no problems or challenges, I would gently suggest that one of the reasons might be that you haven't listened carefully enough to the people who disagree with you. Um, if you want to find out what the problems are with your own worldview, listen to people's objections. For instance, one of the biggest challenges to Christianity is how do we justify evil and suffering in this world? How could a loving, personal God allow something like that? One of the most powerful examples of a Christian wrestling with the problem set of his own worldview is the famous Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky. In his book, The Brothers Karamazov, he, uh, he writes about a conversation between two of the brothers, a skeptic named Ivan and a Christian named Alyosha. Ivan is telling his brother a bunch of true stories about atrocities committed against children. One of the stories is about Turkish soldiers who um, take babies out of their mother's arms and kill the babies in front of their mother's eyes. In fact, I can't even tell you the details of the story because it's too gruesome, it's too disturbing. And if you want to find out, read the book, but be warned, it's really disturbing. But the question is, if there's a God, how could he possibly allow something like that? There is no easy, simplistic, mic drop answer that silences every objection and yet a lot of times christians act like there is we need to wrestle with the problem set of our own worldview or one of the biggest challenges to atheism is how do we explain the existence of evil if this world is the product of a random unguided natural process then that means that everything that happens in this world including what we call evil is also the product of a random, unguided, natural process. When we shake our fists at evil and complain about evil, what are we actually shaking our fists at? As Richard Dawkins has, himself has said, the universe we observe has no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Friends, having 
Healthy conversations about the most controversial topics in our culture requires that we allow for complexity. But in order to do that, we need to be honest about the problems in our own view of reality. And if we do that, that leads to the next thing we see here. Jesus allows complexity, but he also shows respect. Um, later in this conversation, the woman raises a religious debate. She says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This was one of the biggest religious debates between Jews and Samaritans. The, the question was, what's the true mountain where true worship takes place? Mount Gerizim in Samaria or Mount Zion in Jerusalem? Jesus wants to correct some severe misunderstandings that she has. But before Jesus disagrees with her, he respects and affirms what he can about her viewpoint. He respects and affirms what he can about her viewpoint. He says, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So notice, Jesus disagrees with her about where the place of true worship is. But before he disagrees with her, he affirms her. He says, look, your desire to worship the Father, that's good. That's right. That's wonderful. I'm affirming that. Jesus begins by respecting and affirming what he can about her viewpoint. And before Jesus says no, he begins by saying yes. Before he says no, he begins by saying yes. And we need to do the same thing. Before we have to say yes, before we can say no. In other words, um, we have to make sure that we understand what people actually believe before we can even disagree with them. Otherwise, we're just disagreeing with something they may not even believe themselves. Um, for instance, I um, was in Colorado a few years ago, and one day Jenny and I decided to drive up to Pikes Peak. It's one of the tallest mountains in Colorado, over 14,000 feet. Um, now, this particular day, it was gorgeous weather. In fact, it was so nice that down at the base of the mountain, I was very comfortable in shorts and a t-shirt. If someone had asked me, hey, do you think you might want to bring a coat for the peak? I would have said, no, it's not that cold. I had a mental idea in my head about what the weather was like. And, 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 and based on that mental idea, I said, no, I don't need a coat. But when we actually drove up to the top of the mountain and stepped out, my mental idea evaporated because now I was actually feeling the cold air on my body. I, I was no longer theorizing about reality. I, I had physically stepped into reality and was experiencing it for myself. Up until that point, my no to a coat was not based on reality. It, it wasn't based on the ability to say, yes, I understand what the cold air on the top of the mountain is really like. I had to say, yes, I understand, really understand what the cold air is like before I could say, no, I don't need a coat. Does that make sense? Friends, anytime we encounter a view of reality that's different from what we believe, we need to um, respect and affirm as much as we can about that. Before we disagree, we need to make sure we understand what people actually mean before we disagree. We have to say yes before we can say no. In other words, we have to get up on the mountain with other people so that we can experience what they believe 
for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll simply be disagreeing with something they may not even actually believe themselves. For instance, um, if you're exploring Christianity, suppose someone asked you, do you believe the gospel? Before you can say no or yes, you have to be able to say, yes, I understand what the gospel means. When I was 30 years old and exploring faith for myself, I thought the gospel meant an angry God who's constantly upset with us worthless, evil human beings. But if I clean myself up and obey a bunch of arbitrary rules, then maybe, just maybe, God will let me into his heaven. I would have said no to that, and I would still say no if that's what Christianity really means. But that's not the gospel to begin with. We have to say yes before we can say no. So at a practical level, here's what this means for us. Whenever we're engaging the most complex questions in our culture, whether it's abortion or transgender identities or whatever it might be, are we willing to really engage with the best arguments of those who disagree with us? If we really do that, um, let me tell you what happens. Uh, you'll read one viewpoint, maybe you'll read a book, and you'll say, oh, wow, what a great argument. I never thought about that before. This changes everything. How could anyone disagree with this? But then you read another book on the other side, and all of a sudden you're saying, oh, well, I never thought about that. That's actually a pretty good argument, too. Now, the first thing that happens is you just get really confused. <laughs> you're like, well, now I don't know what to believe because you're feeling the wind from both sides. But if you keep doing that more than just a few times, if you keep reading and studying, eventually what happens is you begin to get clarity on what the core questions are and what the best arguments on each side are. And as you do that, what happens is you begin to be able to think much more clearly and much more deeply about these questions. You, know, you may end up believing the same thing you believed in the beginning, but even so, your, the roots of your belief will be so much deeper, and your respect for someone else's viewpoint will be so much higher. Friends, that takes work. Um, it's really hard to do that, but there is nothing more respectful than taking someone else's viewpoint seriously enough that you're willing to get up on the mountain with them. And if you do that, that leads to the next thing we see. Jesus allows complexity. Second, he shows respect for other viewpoints. But third, Jesus extends compassion. Um, uh, we've seen that Jesus is breaking several social taboos just to have a conversation with this woman. But the really amazing thing is what he actually says to her. Jesus asks her, will you give me a drink? One of my professors in seminary was a man named Jerem Bars. Uh, he's an incredibly beautiful human being who's had a huge impact on my life. Jerem Bars taught us that when Jesus asks her for a drink, it's an example of how Jesus is constantly affirming the worth, value, and dignity of every human being. Jesus places himself in a position of need before this woman and says, will you help me? Because you have something good and beautiful to offer, even to me. Jesus begins by dignifying her and humanizing her. That is incredible. And especially, uh, it would be very important because um, up until this point in her life, especially with men, her experience probably would have been very different. As the story progresses, we find out that she's had five husbands, and the man she's with now is not her husband. 
Over the centuries, many scholars, mostly men, if not exclusively men, have simply assumed that this woman was a serial adulterer or a flagrant sexual sinner or possibly even a prostitute. But all Jesus says is, you've had five husbands. The reality is, we don't really know what her story was. Maybe she's a five-time widow. Maybe um, she's barren and, and her five husbands divorced her because she's unable to produce a child, a son for them. The reality is we don't know, so we shouldn't assume. In fact, it's at least as possible that she's been rejected and abandoned five times as it is that she's committed adultery five times. But whatever her story is, it's one of pain, loss, and probably incredible shame. And even more, whatever her story is, it's a story of spiritual thirst, of seeking the deepest desires of our heart in things that can never give it to us. And she has a part to play in that. She's with a man who's not her husband. She's thirsting for something. When Jesus asks her for a drink, he's inviting her to a conversation about her spiritual thirst. But the way he does it is so compassionate. When Jesus says, go call your husband. Um, well, by the way, he offers her first. He says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, the woman's intrigued. And she says, sir, give me this living water. Jesus says, go, go call your husband. Friends, this is the turning point in the conversation. In fact, this is holy ground. And Jesus just took off his shoes because he knows that he just stepped into the most sacred, vulnerable, and painful part of this woman's life. When Jesus says, go call your husband, he's um, giving her an opportunity to disclose her own story without outing her. He's inviting her to share her story with Jesus. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't shame her. He invites her into a conversation about the broken, sinful ways that she's been responding to the pain and loss in her life. He's basically saying, do you really want this living water? then we need to have a conversation about where you've been drinking up until now. Friends, here's why this is so important for us. In our culture, especially over the last several years, we've gone from seeing people who disagree with us as being wrong to seeing them as evil. And please understand, we all have moral and spiritual darkness in our lives. I do. The woman at the well does. You do too. But in our culture, when we call people evil, we're not seeing people as human beings in need of redemption. We're seeing them as monsters to be crushed. When Jesus sees the moral and spiritual distortions in this woman's life, he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't crush her. He has compassion for her. And we need to do the same thing. What might that look like? John Anazu is a... Uh, great Christian writer. He's also a law professor here at Wash U. Uh, John is coming out with a, a brand new book called Learning to Disagree. And if you want to ask him about it, you can feel free because John's a member of this church. Um, but I was fortunate enough to read an advanced copy of this book. And in the book, John says this, every one of us holds beliefs and opinions that other people think are evil. Now, I suppose we could just run around calling each other evil, 
But perhaps it is better to start with the presumption that most people can be wrong, even deeply wrong, without being evil. One practical way to embrace this presumption is to look for something good about the people you find most wrong. And if you can't come up with anything, ask yourself if it's because they need to change or because you need to change. Friends, Jesus allows for complexity. He respects other people's viewpoints. And he also extends compassion to people. He begins by respecting and affirming as much as he can about them. And the reason he can do it, and the reason you and I can do it, is because of the last thing we see here. Jesus allows complexity. He shows respect. He extends compassion. But lastly, Jesus embodies love. You may have noticed up until this point that there's a, a theme that binds all of these principles, these first three principles together. In order to allow complexity, show respect, and extend compassion, we need to be able to enter into someone else's story, to enter into someone else's world and life and experience. Doing that is an act of love. It's an act of love. What is love? In our hyper-individualized culture, we often assume that love means giving people freedom to live however they want as long as they don't harm someone else. But Jesus shows us a very different picture of love. In the Bible, love means sacrificing our own interests, well-being, and safety for the sake of someone else, often people who can give us nothing in return. Fully entering into someone else's life like that will cost us. And here's the thing, that is not something you can do virtually. You can't do that online, not really. Entering into someone else's life like that means embodied presence in their lives because personal embodied presence changes everything. It changes everything. When you're going through pain and someone's there to share that pain with you, have you ever noticed how some of the pain just seems to roll off of your shoulders and onto them? Not all of it, but enough that it makes a difference. You can feel it. Or if you're the one who's there for someone in their pain, have you ever noticed how some of the pain comes onto your shoulders? Again, not all of it, but enough that you feel it. We all need someone to be personally present with us to share our pain, and we also need to be that someone who's personally present with others to share their pain. That's love. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He embodies his love in this woman's life. He shares her pain. He shares all of her pain. Notice at the very end of the passage, she says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She says, someone's coming. Someone, a savior, a Messiah, a Christ, someone's coming and his personal presence is going to change everything. And Jesus says, it's me, I'm here. He enters her world, enters her story. He enters her pain. But unlike you and me, Jesus doesn't share just a little bit of her pain. Jesus shoulders all of her pain because Jesus is personally present in the body. That's what incarnation means, by the way. To us, it sounds like maybe just some fancy, meaningless theological word, but incarnation simply means in the body. Jesus 
embodies his presence in this world and Jesus shoulders all of our pain and loss, all of our moral and spiritual darkness in his body. How does he do that? Remember Jesus said, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He keeps talking about the hour. In fact, he says it twice in this passage. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. If you've been with us, you know that whenever Jesus talks about the hour, he's almost always talking about the hour of his death on the cross. And where is the cross? It's outside of Jerusalem on a mountain called Calvary. On the cross, Jesus got up onto the mountain with us. And on that mountain, Jesus shouldered all of our pain and loss. He felt the raging wind, the withering wind of all our pain and loss and all our moral and spiritual darkness. He took all of that upon his shoulders so that we could be set free from evil and so that we could feel the sweet air of God's love for us. And the more that love gets embodied in your life, the more you become able to embody the same love for someone else. You may not be able to convince them of your opinion or your belief. You may not even be able to convince them or persuade them that Jesus is real. But you can embody the love of Jesus in someone else's life. You can bring some of the mountain down to them. That they might be able to feel the, the sweet air, the wind of God's love for them. The kind of love that, that sets this world free from all wrong and all evil. Elie Wiesel was a teenage survivor of two of the most brutal Nazi concentration camps in the Holocaust, both Auschwitz and Buchenwald. He wrote about his experiences in a haunting little book called Night. And one of the most infamous scenes in this book is that uh, Elie and uh, all the other um, inmates at the concentration camp were forced to watch uh, hanging. Uh, one of the people who got hanged was a, a little Jewish boy about Ali's age. In fact, he describes the boy as having the, the sad eyes of an angel. And while he's watching this boy being hanged, he hears the voice of a man behind him say, where is God? And in his heart, Ali hears another voice inside of him that says, where is he? Here he is, hanging on these gallows. It was at that moment Elie Wiesel lost his faith in God. Now, when he wrote his book, no one would publish it because it was written by a teenager. But a French novelist named Francois Mauriac, who was also deeply Catholic, he met Elie, heard his story, and was so moved by his story that he used his literary connections to get the book published. In fact, he wrote the introduction for the book, and in that introduction, he says that when Elise shared his story with him, especially about the little Jewish boy who got hanged, he said, what could I say? I, who believe God is love, what answer could I give him? Could I tell him about another Jewish boy with a sad, angelic expression reflected in his eyes as he hung on a cross before a watching world? Could I tell him that the cross was the key to the impenetrable mystery that resolves all human suffering? Could I tell him that? I wanted to tell him that. I should have told him that. But instead, all I could do was embrace him weeping. Years later, when he was an old man, Elie Wiesel won the Nobel Prize, and during his acceptance speech, he said, 
I have faith. Faith in God and in God's creation. And that faith in God, without that faith, all action is impossible. Friends, listen, I have no idea if Francois Moriac's embrace had anything to do with Elie Wiesel's renewed faith in God. What I do know is that anytime we embody God's love like that, we are bringing just a little bit of the air from the mountain of God's love down to people who may not be able to get up on the mountain themselves. Are we willing to allow for complexity, to show respect for other viewpoints, to extend compassion to others, and to embody the love of God in their lives? The only way we can do that is through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you that you created us for love, to experience your love, to know your love, and to walk in your love, enjoying your love, and showing and embodying your love to others. We confess to you that we have set our loves on so many other things, that this world is filled with so much heartache, evil, and, and, and brokenness, Lord. And, and there are things that have happened to us for which we're not responsible. But we are responsible for the broken, sinful ways we've responded to those things. For the ways we've set our loves on things that can never satisfy. And the ways we've rejected you in order to go chasing after other wells of water. Father, we pray that you'll forgive us. But even more, we pray that you will renew us and help us to walk in your love. Please help us in the most important conversations of this world, help us to allow for complexity, to own and be honest about the problem set in our own worldview. I pray that you will help us to show respect and affirm other people's viewpoints as much as we can. I pray that you will help us to extend compassion to others, not seeing them as evil monsters who need to be crushed, but human beings in need of love and redemption. And finally, Father, we pray that you will help all of us to embody your love to a broken hurting world around us, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.